Cosmos, carrying Bird's requested replacement dogs, failed to breach the pack ice and in mid-January lost its spotter plane, the first of its kind used in the Southern Ocean whale fishery. Norwegian pilot Leif Lear recently engaged in the search for Nobile and the Red Tent, and the ship's doctor, Ingvald Schreiner, who was a passenger aboard the de Havilland Moth when it went missing, became Antarctica's first air accident fatalities. The pair got it into their heads that they should fly to the Balleny Islands, making them the first to fly below the Antarctic Circle, and stripped the aircraft of any unnecessary components to lighten the airframe and thereby increase its range. They made their flight on the 26th of December, and that was the last anyone heard of them. Bird agreed Dr. Haldol Barnes, slated to sail aboard the city of New York once more, could transfer to the Cosmos once the sailing ship got south from Dunedin, keeping things sweet with the fleet that increasingly looked like the Americans' only way off the ice. If the factory vessels and their chasers couldn't breach the pack, the James Clark Ross also lost one of its chasers in the effort. The city of New York and the Illinois Bowling stood little chance. Bird sent a request that the whalers send chase boats to the Bay of Wales to pull out his men. It may have shat the nest by adding the Fairchild to the list of essential equipment he expected put aboard. Based on the losses the C.A. Larson incurred in helping Bird the previous summer, the whaling fleet remained non-committal letting Bird know they might depart north at any moment, as their first responsibility lay in the well-being of their crews, whereas the Little Americans were safe in their haven. All radio transmissions came couched in terms of safety and utmost responsibilities. No one mentioning shareholders, cost per unit time and expedition coffers, but the financial concerns played their part. The whalers didn't want to interrupt their 30,000 US dollar a day industry diverting to the Bay of Wales loading aboard supernumerary men and equipment and then feeding the extra mouths. And Bird didn't want to lose the big money items, both in terms of replacement cost and PR utility back in the USA. The Fairchild didn't hold the iconic status of the Ford Trimotor, but it could fold up and fit on a chaser, and seeing it flying overhead and forming a centrepiece at ceremonies would give American audiences a greater sense of connection with Bird's Antarctic feats than any number of photographs of it could do. Gould's geological party returned to Little America after two and a half months in the field. While everyone was pleased to see them and the altered social dynamic wrought by the presence of the six returnees helped ease tensions and boost morale overall at Little America, Paul Seipel felt heartbroken that every one of the dogs he cared for during the winter and trained up during the spring served as dog food for their fellow dogs. Increasingly concerned at the prospect of spending a second winter at Little America, Bird sent an urgent request that fell short of a mayday because no one said that word three times at the start of the transmission, that the Alonso should send a chaser to retrieve ten men in need of medical attention not available at winter quarters. Bird couldn't bring himself to make it a mayday call because presiding over such an emergency would blot his public image in a way trail hardships endured by his men would not, and the ten men in question weren't actually in need of urgent medical attention. Bird was trying to gild the lily. Everyone could always find some benefit from medical attention, but, but <laughs> everyone could always find some benefit from medical attention. But Bird was talking up some mundane conditions to try to find leverage with the whalers, while still keeping the problem from constituting an actual emergency, because that would hold adverse repercussions. In a genuine emergency, I would trust Bird to act in the best interests of all involved, but at the sub-emergency level, he was willing to toy with other people's safety in ways I don't find conscionable. The reason I would trust him when the shit hit the fan is not because I think he was a good man at heart, but because he wouldn't want the adverse publicity associated with not acting decisively and effectively. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons gets the same result as doing it for the right reason, but holds a very different ethical footing. You get out of here, you. but holds a very different ethical footing. Little America held enough food and coal to support another winter at full strength staffing. The generator fuel would run out and the diet would become increasingly dull as the niceties dried up, 
but they could stay on the same levels of comfort and amenity as, say, Amundsen. Some expedition members, Gould and Seitel foremost among them, mentioned they wouldn't mind staying on, as they could really get a good head of steam with the scientific projects, but Bird contemplated the possibility with a sense of financial and PR dread. The expedition debts couldn't be settled without the lecture tours, books and PR opportunities, only possible if he returned to the USA, and the more time that passed between his achievements and his receiving plaudits for them in person, the fewer column inches the newspapers would dedicate to them. Another winter at Little America constituted a marketing disaster in Bird's eyes. Bird stranded helpless, crew mutinies in winter dark, five dead including Boy Scout Paul Seipel, would get him more attention than he currently stood to Ghana, but not of a kind anyone might want. The Alonso got stuck in the ice on its way north, making chances look crook for the Eleanor Bowling, which departed Dunedin on January 20th to give relieving the expedition an old college try. Quarry's Sly Grogging Club took on semi-formal status, naming itself the Harbour Board, its members meeting whenever Bird called a meeting to discuss new developments regarding their removal from Little America. The Harbour Board felt unhappy at the way information about their prospects disseminated, which was slowly and incompletely. Men facing a second unpaid winter in decreasing comfort wanted to know what news came in from the radio and how that news affected their chances of getting home that season. Previously cloistered antagonism to the leadership became increasingly brazen as time wore on and nerves rubbed raw. Smith describing the camp as up in arms against Bird toward the end of January. At the end of the expedition, Hilton Rayleigh worked himself into a hospital stay trying to get the goose that lays the golden eggs home in time to capitalise on the glory and before anyone went mad and killed everyone with an axe. He met with Governor Harry Bird, the head of the National Geographic Society, the Secretary of the Navy and the Secretary of State, trying to find the lever that would set in motion a national, state or geographic society relief mission. The Coast Guard did offer to send an icebreaker, but the offer constituted more a politeness than anything useful, as the icebreakers all lay half a world away and couldn't hope to arrive on site, ready to go to work, in anything approaching a helpful time span. The nearest naval vessel lay 8,000 nautical miles away and wasn't particularly suited to ice work and wasn't especially inclined to ditch its mission to go to Bird's aid. The bind frustrated Rayleigh. Bird wanted the situation kept under wraps to avoid undesirable press, but without the news of the expedition's plight, the people with the reins couldn't cite public pressure as a reason to help or to bring pressure on parties that might. The depression precluded any unwarranted government spending, and without a declared emergency, spending government money on extracting Bird and his men was not a high priority. The story got out, in spite of Rayleigh's efforts, and the 42 stranded men became a hot topic the story and Bird's attempts to defuse it, filling column inches in a manner most pleasing to editors and to William Randolph Hearst particularly. The story went international with governments weighing in to justify their getting or not getting involved in rescue efforts. That dread R word putting Bird into a tizzy and not pleasing anyone aboard the city of New York or the Eleanor Bowling as they felt the press releases trying to control the information regarding the situation, made by Rayleigh but blamed on Owen, made out they were cowards in the face of duty. Bird tried to be sneaky at long distances over the radio, instructing Rayleigh to speak to the Norwegian ambassador and let him know that Bird would have to release the news that the Alonso refused to help while south of the pack ice. Bird claimed he was seeking to protect the reputation of the Alonso's captain, but asked Rayleigh, do you get the point here? Because you can't wink conspiratorially over a radio link. The whaler's response came out that they would help if they were needed, but nothing Bird sent them to date constituted a cry for help. Touché, Norwegians. If Bird considered the situation an emergency, they were going to make him make the call. Rayleigh convinced a reluctant Bird that an offer to pay remuneration for relief services would get the job done, where petulant blackmail attempts would only see the Norwegians call the bluff. No one at sea should ignore a call for rescue, but you can blow off someone demanding you give them relief which started as a poor choice of words, but then I decided I would pretend it was deliberate and that I was proud of my pun. Rayleigh set to rounding up the cash, quickly reaching millions of dollars in escrow, ready to prompt a reluctant whaler when Bird gave the word. 
the whalers gave their cash-assured word to attend on the 29th of January. A party broke out Little America in the convivial mood this news propagated, but the grousing and melancholia increased as the alcohol once more took hold. The increasingly lazy and belligerent members of the Harbour Board commented darkly about assaulting bird, and whether or not the comments constituted that peculiarly American form of protected speech that is, speaking in Lockerumia, Balkan took it sufficiently seriously to state in no uncertain terms that he would deal with anyone who moved against the commander, receiving brawny backing from his fellow Norwegians. Bird read the situation as sufficiently serious that he locked himself in his quarters for several days. Gould stood clear of the situation. He officially resumed duty as XO on the 30th of January, but Bird's treatment of the geological party while out on the trail left him resentful and reticent to speak for the commander's corner. Scientists can do a fine line in passive aggression when they choose to. There are allegedly apolitical work keeping them busy, so they don't appear to be rocking any boats, but their withdrawal from social and leadership networks expressing, in a manner I don't hold much respect for, their feelings. I doubt Bird would respond in any meaningful way to active aggression, but since the results stand the same either way, I'd respect Larry Gould more if he didn't choose the sulky intellectual path. Look at me, I'm unhappy and hold a valid complaint against management, but I'm expressing that by being busy and aloof. Captain Brown radioed that the Eleanor Bowling worked in at the northern edge of the pack ice. Unhappy that the less ice-capable ship might lose the struggle south, costing Bird his death-free clean slate for the expedition, and any monies arising from the sale of the vessel after the expedition, the commander ordered Brown back to Dunedin to take on more coal. Somehow, the city of New York departed Dunedin 50 tonnes short of the necessary bunkering to make the round trip, requiring the Eleanor Bowling transfer some of its own load on reaching the pack. Bird repeatedly instructed that the Bowling turn north and Brown repeatedly ignored Bird's instructions. A radio message received from the Eleanor Bowling's mates, Charles McGuinness and Harry Adams, read, Aware of contents of recent radios, wish to inform you that we do not in any way concur in any disobedience of your orders, and ask you to now respectfully order Captain to obey them. Your information on ice conditions is correct. Third, restated his orders and had Gould and McKinley follow up with additional messages to Brown. It did turn back with bad grace and several snide transmissions, sarcastically asserting his loyalty to Bird and his goals. Captain Melville, eager to see Mount Erebus, kept trying to convince Bird that a track well west of the stipulated 180th meridian might see the city of New York breach the pack. Bird responded that the history of worse ice towards Ross Island indicated against Melville's plan. But the sea captain kept working further west in spite of a direct order not to from Bird. Correspondence from oceanographer Harry Shropshire to Harold Saunders, the cartographer later using data from the city of New York as the basis for a new chart, urged that the log of the ship should not be used for coordinates. Melville claimed the ship was blown 300 nautical miles off course by adverse winds, but he simply ignored Bird's instructions and sailed to within sight of Mount Erebus to sate his personal curiosity, adding days to the ship's transit through the Ross Sea and leading to erroneous entries in the ship's log in an attempt to cover his order ignoring tracks. Mason began experiencing symptoms of appendicitis, becoming confined to bed by the pain on the 5th of February and begging Dr. Coman for morphine on the 6th. Bird conveniently retrofitted Mason's symptoms back a month in his version of the expedition history to give his attempts to coerce the whalers into sending a chaser his way some degree of validity where previously ingrown toenails and general decrepitude stood in for the medical conditions he claimed he wanted given attention as soon as possible without actually declaring an emergency. Dr. Coman discussed operating but knew that doing so at Little America would require at least he and Mason stay on for another winter as a rough crossing on the Southern Ocean could prove life-threatening to anyone recovering from such surgery. He kept Mason under observation and trained Sipel up to act as surgical assistant if the radio operator's condition worsened. A harbour board meeting party ran late that night, keeping the patient awake, 
prompting Seipel to write Bird a letter calling for loyal legion action to curtail the drunkenness. While Bird met with Seipel to discuss the problem, news came in that the city of New York was through the pack and likely to arrive in five days. With Seipel's concerns, the financial deal with the whalers and the prospect of spending another winter at Little America suddenly moot, everyone began frantic preparations for departure. Bird sent Balkan to the barrier edge to coordinate the arrangement of materials to load when the ship arrived, sending him with eight of the worst troublemakers, among them the most active members of the harbour board. Residents of this coastal outpost referred to the site as detention camp due to the obvious driver behind Bird's personnel choices. A sign-up sheet on the bulletin board invited the men to adopt a dog from the sledging teams, but this only applied to those dogs working the trail out to Balkan's camp. Weak dogs and puppies once more going to Vaughan for execution. Another notice on the bulletin board, from Bird, reminded the men of their contractual obligation to turn over all photographs for use by the New York Times and to prevent anyone breaking the exclusivity deal mapped out with them. Bird finally, too late by my measure, ordered the remaining alcohol dumped, and even this half arsery didn't achieve the desired outcome, as Thorne managed to spirit away enough spirits that the sly grogging continued until departure. On the 17th of February, McKinley also went down with apparent appendicitis. On the 18th, the city of New York arrived, and all hands but the invalids turned to loading duties. Room for 60 dogs on the ship meant that 17 of those used in the final hauling operations got an appointment with Vaughan, and the city of New York sailed on the morning of the 19th of February, leaving behind 50 tons of stores and 17 dog corpses at Balkan's detention camp, and Little America still well stocked with food and coal. Bird gave all Little Americans a day off on their first day at sea, which is a clever move for a boss, as almost everyone spent the first day seasick. Rucker and Vanderveer screened footage of friends and family at home, filmed, developed and dispatched by Paramount shortly before the ship's crews gathered in Dunedin. Hansen saw his son, born two months after he departed the USA, for the first time in these home movies. A week after leaving the barrier, the city of New York breached the pack ice, following a relatively easy transit, and met with the Eleanor Bowling and the Cosmos. The whaling vessel received Mason, who went into the care of Dr. Heldor Barnes, the Cosmos rushing the patient to Wellington. Several hands transferred to the Eleanor Bowling to even out the distribution, including Balkan, who took on the duties of the first mate, who fell ill, and the Paramount twins, eager to get their films back to the USA as quickly as possible to maximise the impact on Bird's return. The city of New York pulled into Port Chalmers, New Zealand on the 10th of March and Bird gave the wintering party two days leave and $100 each. Most got out on the piss, but Paul Seipel went sniffing wildflowers and flying in meadows until... My body cried out for a glass of milk and some fruit. I try to like Paul Seipel, but I just flat out don't. And that's coming from someone who was a Queen Scout and who also doesn't drink. Russell Owen checked himself into a hospital, emotionally and physically exhausted after his harrowing year. Dean Smith sought to catch an early steamer back to the USA to pick up flying work, but Bird, perhaps concerned how it might look to have the expedition higher-ups arrive piecemeal, and perhaps concerned that Smith might be looking to make hay from his copious diary notes at Bird's expense, induced him to stay on with cash, first-class accommodations, and a fast passage to Panama, where he would while away the time spent waiting for the ships to arrive, flying the Canal Defence Aircraft stationed at the United States Army Air Force France Field Air Base, where he was later joined by Balkan. Bird recounted his adventures to eager New Zealand journalists, all the while eschewing the notion that he went south to claim territory on the behalf of the USA. He did let slip to a reporter that the expedition was near broke, and spent a lot of energy trying to trump this. What I meant to say was that the expedition was not near broke. Bird sent word to return to the ships for loading duties, which his volunteer crew sensibly ignored, continuing their adventures using the unlimited rail passes the government furnished them with, and leaving their commander to high longshoremen to get their ships ready for departure. As the expedition drew near its end, 
Bird became increasingly paranoid about loyalty, concerned that information might leak from his crew and dash his chances of making good on the PR opportunities their return held. While concerned about unofficial channels of communication, he was also unhappy with the official ones, accusing Russell Owen of passing up opportunities to further deify Bird and laud his achievements, citing Owen as a megalomaniac to Marie, and demanding his employers reprimand the journalist on their return. Today, I'm at Potter Point in the snow. The voyages north of the Eleanor Bowling and the city of New York saw the crews automatically divide into winterers and non-winterers. And but for a forced five-day stay in Tahiti, where short funds meant the city of New York couldn't bunker coal until the bowling arrived, the transits passed in sullen disquiet, as many adventures with protracted coders do. The Eleanor Bowling took the city of New York in tow, and the ships arrived at the Panama Canal on the 14th of May. Bird gave a lot of the celebrations on their return a swerve, heading into the mountains with Hilton Rayleigh, the Paramount Twins, Charles Murphy, author of the biography about Bird, and chosen as ghostwriter for Bird's memoir of the expedition, and an editor from National Geographic magazine, making ready for the August edition, slated to feature nothing but Bird's exploits. They spent two weeks writing articles and fixing the official narrative so as to present a united front in representing the expedition. The bowling reached port on the 22nd of May without the city of New York in tow, having run too low on coal to carry on doing the work of both ships. Bird requested a tow from a Navy tug, but the Navy wanted no truck with a civilian vessel and refused. Bird ordered the Eleanor Bowling bunker coal and head out again, but also put out the call for help to his influential circle of friends and relatives and the Secretary of the Navy summarily reclassified the City of New York, a scientific vessel, in order to circumvent Navy regulations regarding use of infrastructure for civilian purposes, allowing the tug to make the tow. Hilton Rayleigh fronted Russell Owen, and while the meeting is only referred to tangentially in documents arising from the expedition, naval historian Eugene Rogers suspects Rayleigh gave Bird the opportunity to blackmail the journalist into never revealing anything distasteful about Bird's person or leadership, while giving him deniability about the distasteful practice of blackmail. Digression on blackmail. I've had someone try to blackmail me, and I've been accused of blackmail. In the former, someone who found out something about me that they thought I should be ashamed of, threatened to let the world know if I didn't stop bad-mouthing their religion. Fortunately for me, I wasn't ashamed and could challenge them to publish the information they had and demonstrate how shitty their religion, Christianity, inspired them to try to act, thereby helping reinforce the original point that so inflamed their ire. Christianity is shit. In the latter, I was told my willingness to discuss problematic behaviour publicly constituted an attempt to blackmail someone into discussing that behaviour. Let me be clear, that was exactly what I threatened to do, and the result I wanted to achieve but I don't think it constituted blackmail because I wasn't threatening anything unwarranted or trying to get something that I had no claim to. Problematic behaviour warrants addressing, not covering up. Either the person engaging in that behaviour needs to stop it or the person finding it problematic needs an explanation as to why it will continue. Simply hiding from that doesn't get anyone anywhere and the Atheist Foundation of Australia and all who sailed in her and helped cover up or remain silent about David Nichols' leadership can fuck off and die, particularly those who've tried to call me a bully and a blackmailer for trying to get the hypocrisy inherent to an organisation that highlights abuse and its covering up in other organisations that then tries to cover up the abuse it enabled some light. I thanked Mr Black for his feedback in early episodes of this series but it's a long time since I felt grateful to that piece of shit and while his webpage claims he's too old to be bothered with discussing the past he doesn't accept that excuse when it comes from George Pell, and by that standard, I don't accept it from him. Anywho, no indication of what leverage Bird applied to Owen, but we do know the journalist never wrote a bad word about his leader. The Navy tug refused to tow the city of New York all the way back to New York, and the Eleanor Bowling took over, making such good time that the two ships faffed about at sea for several days, killing time so their arrival could coincide with the carefully arranged celebrations of same. And I'm in my zodiac, slowly drifting out of the Graham Passage into the Gerlach Strait. I've got a few minutes on my hands. I'm hunkered down below the pontoons out of the wind. 
During this period, Harold June stole Dean Smith's diary on Bird's orders. During this period, Harold June stole Dean Smith's diary on Bird's orders. On receiving report of Smith's distress over this, Bird ordered a search of the ship, but given his oft-stated concern over the financial losses he would incur if someone leaked such a document to the Hearst newspapers, didn't seem overly fussed that it never turned up. Bird's friend and financial benefactor, Charlie Bob, later recounted to Smith that he'd seen the diary at Bird's home, and June eventually admitted to acting as Bird's hand in the incident, though the diary never ended up back in Smith's possession. On the 19th of June, Marie Bird and son Dickie sailed on the Macom mayoral ceremonial tug with Jimmy Walker to greet the expedition. Bird gallantly leapt from the railing of the city of New York onto the deck of the Macom, rushed to his beloved and shook her hand, which is the most Birdian thing ever and probably said more about him than any number of words from Russell Owen could hope to do. Mayor Walker hosted the expedition as to the second biggest ticker tape parade in history, runner-up to that afforded Charles Lindbergh after his Atlantic crossing. A detail Bird paid attention to because of course he did because he was Richard Bird. His ego took some solace that at least he was the first person to receive three such parades. Balkan contacted Anthony Fokker, who delightedly put his best test pilot back on the payroll as of the 1st of June. The National Geographic Society chartered a train to carry the crew to Washington DC on the 20th, where they met with President Hoover and the Secretary of the Navy. They laid wreaths at Floyd Bennett's grave, and Byrd received a specially minted gold medal from the National Geographic Society president, Gilbert Grosvenor, having already received the Society's Hubbard Medal the last time he was in town. On leaving the reception at the White House, a Department of Immigration employee handed Bernd Belkin a subpoena announcing his imminent deportation for breaking the terms of his citizenship application by leaving the country and returning without filing the necessary paperwork. Balkan's application was saved at the influential urging of a New York congressman, but the bureaucratic snub to the most competent member of the expedition still hit the Norwegian hard. The expedition unwound in the slow, whittling way such endeavours do, with people gradually heading their separate ways and picking up the threads of their other, more real, but temporarily alien lives. Bird set to work crafting the copy and lectures by which to work down the six-figure debt the expedition left him holding, and the scientific team set about their work analysing their specimens and data. The expedition's achievements saw calls within Congress and in the newspapers that America should apply the Monroe Doctrine to all areas in Antarctica explored by US interests, namely Palmer, Wilkes and Byrd. Growing unemployment in the wake of the stock market crash precluded sending federally funded expeditions to fulfil the occupation premise within the Monroe Doctrine. The government took no action based on Byrd's return, but Byrd placed Antarctica on the national conscience to a degree that efforts by Palmer and Wilkes never managed. Byrd received numerous honorary doctorates and symbolic memberships, but none that came with much in the way of bucks, and he had to turn down many celebratory events in his honour in order to get some time with his family and to work with Murphy on the memoir that Putnam wanted published in time for Christmas. Byrd, June, Smith, Parker and McKinley received the Distinguished Flying Cross, but Balkan citizenship and civilianship precluded him from the US military honour. Almost everything written about the expedition at the time now reads as amorphously bland. Bird went beyond Amundsen's habit of ignoring distasteful episodes or dangerous drama, his publishing requirements removing almost any trace of personality from the people the vague accounts he allowed out into the world afforded the public, and outside the cities where Bird held some standing as a personality, the sustained PR campaign began to bore audiences. A similarly vague antagonism towards America's sparkling white hero kicked off, finding its funhouse mirror in attitudes toward Bird in Britain, where the disdain was magnified and uglier and prevented most people appreciating the genuine achievements of the expedition. The first flight over the South Pole didn't hold tangible reward, 
but it was no small achievement of logistics and endurance. And as already noted, geologists with a stake in British pride in Antarctic research gave Gould tremendous props for his work on the barrier and in the Queen Maud range. Bird ran the largest Antarctic wintering party to date, and no one in his care died in spite of the dangerous conditions and operations. Bird requested a scientific report from Gould on the 17th of September. Still piqued about Bird not sending air support to his dog sledging party, Gould responded that there wasn't enough time to do a good job and that Bird should have made the request earlier. Bird responded that Gould should get on with the job and furnish a preliminary report in short order and that Gould should proofread the provided galley proof of his memoir, Little America. The two lay at correspondence loggerheads and Bird blinked first, demanding Gould's notes on the book. Gould responded that he only received three chapters and the appendix. The book follows the mould established by all other publications relating to the expedition. Those arising from the pen at Russell Owen while on the ice, earning him the 1930 Pulitzer Prize for a reportage, by placing Bird in the centre of every significant event, ignoring anything bad and putting everyone else at Little America so much in the background, they might as well be shadow puppets illuminated by a 15 watt bulb dancing on a black screen. Only in the book did Bird finally name the unnamed mountains he discovered, the Edsel Ford Range. The bidding war that took place behind closed doors fell Ford's way, likely taking a large dent out of Bird's debts. Coram Foster published the first book about the expedition, Gazumping Bird, by five months, but it derived entirely from Owen's output, because Foster had as much to do with the expedition as I did. It sold poorly and didn't dent Putnam's potential market. Seipel, O'Brien, Gould, Harry Adams and Owen also published memoirs of their time in the South. Putnam doing very well out of the deals he made before departure. In the flyleaf of the copy of his book that he sent Dean Smith, Owen wrote, What a pity it has to be so abridged. Most of the first-hand accounts sold well, Siples going into eight editions and five languages, and Gould's still regarded as a classic of polar literature. Gould, already out of sorts over dead dogs and demands Bird placed on him for no return, felt further affront at O'Brien receiving permission to publish a memoir. O'Brien didn't get along with anyone on the sledging party and his book stood to reach the printers a month ahead of his own. The Paramount documentary, part talkie using the newly developed technology and part musically accompanied silent film, received mixed reviews at home, the 1930 Oscar for cinematography and disdain everywhere else. British sensitivities regarding Antarctica, founded on Scott's martyr status and spurred by Amory's avarice, only saw the flaws in the movie. Overly sentimental, staged, vulgar. Bird's control over the stories arising from his efforts constrained information flow exactly as he designed, but this didn't serve him as well as intended, with the saccharine dullness of the official output finding little favour. Bird wasn't discredited by anything that came to light, but he came across as a rich and uncharismatic cipher where public tastes ran to underdogs and heroes in the mould of the Greek tragedy. Bird sold the bowling to a ceiling concern, but the city of New York went on a tour of east coast cities, crewed by expedition members and laden with equipment. Visitors paid an admission fee to meet the men, hear the stories and wear a parka. Exhibitions of paintings and models depicting life at Little America went on display across the nation, and Bird's lectures proved lucrative. Bird pocketing 60% of the door with a minimum of $1,500 per appearance in $1930 at the start of the Great Depression. Bird didn't need universal public love if the seat still filled with enough bums. 30 other expedition members received permission to give lectures and Gould, Lofgren and McKinley received permission to use expedition footage in their public speaking engagements. The government offered to kick off initiatives to help Bird pay off the debts but Bird demurred perhaps wary of the public perception likely to arise should his personal profits from the expedition come to light. Down behind the pontoons of my zodiac, this time off the coast of Lequant Island for the very last zodiac operation of my 2018 contracting. The government did strike commemorative medals for the expeditioners, but Bird mailed these out rather than pay for a reunion and ceremony. The government also afforded citizenship to 13 foreign nationals involved in the expedition, Balkan among them. Bird helped his men where he could, 
writing letters of recommendation and pulling strings to help with college applications. He wrote off debts accrued by Dean Smith in his long-distance attempts to rationalise his investments during the stock market crash, and McKinley, acting as Bird's demobilisation coordinator, took the details of those men unable to find work on returning home, so Bird could put his contacts to work trying to find them employment. On the 30th of September, Gould wrote to Bird asking for officers, equipment and a salary sufficient to allow him to concentrate solely on working out the scientific reports. Bird, so eager to get the I's dotted and the T's crossed before the expedition, took on an ad hoc mode in its wake, only saying that Gould should not concern himself over such matters. Not making agreements and contracts demonstrating that Gould should not concern himself over such matters. Bird hired Navy cartographer Howard Saunders to work up the maps, infuriating both Gould, who was expedition cartographer on paper, and McKinley, one of the few people able to really thoroughly interpret the aerial photography comprising so much of the expedition's cartographic information. Gould booked lectures from November to March, and the scientific write-up ground to a halt. The scientific reports became the final bone of contention between Bird and his two IC that prevented them ever working together again. They kept their ruction private, both deeming a public falling out as potentially damaging, but the tone of their correspondence became increasingly sharp. Echoing the fraught relationship between Scott and Shackleton, Bird got wind of Gould's intentions to return to Antarctica for his own scientific expedition, and that Little America received some mention as a possible winter quarters. Gould felt that those who helped build Little America had some right to access it once more, where Bird asserted that the key backers must be consulted before he gave assent placing the embargo while displacing responsibility for it to an amorphous cloud of people he held no ambition to consult on Gould's behalf. Bird arranged for the National Geographic Society to take over coordinating the write-up of the scientific work, with Harold Saunders taking leadership. Gould would still need to write up the geological papers and Bird would still need to pay for the printing. Bird also fell out with Hilton Rayleigh, accusing the PR man of excessive overheads and underperformance on several fronts the City of New York Coastal Tour faring badly and lecture revenue coming in well under expectations, though this was more due to the state of the depressed economy than it was to Rayleigh's prowess in marketing. Personal friend and expedition contributor, Charlie Bob, ceased being either when he sued Bird for $150,000 in the wake of his indictment for defrauding investors to the tune of $6 million. Besides not having ground to treat his donations as a debt, the amount Bob cited, while matching what he promised, exceeded by half what he actually brought to the table. Hurt and pissed off at further financial hoops to jump through, Bird instructed Howard Saunders to remove all mention of Charlie Bob from the expedition's geographic output. Through all these financial tribulations, Bird couldn't call on the major contributors, such as Ford and Rockefeller, as he already looked to them for kicking off his next expedition. Charlie Lofgren counts among those who departed Bird's company in apparent dudgeon, but stalwart Bird loyalists, such as Goodale, chased down any rumours of dissent or of people being sick of Bird to quiet anything that might counter the public image of a beneficent and competent leader loved by all. Some of these stalwarts arranged a second loyalty pledge and a dinner in Bird's honour, though Gould wasn't invited and felt well pissed that the organisers procured his signature under false pretences. Ralph Shropshire's hydrography work comprised the first scientific report ready for publication, coming to completion in 1932. Both Saunders and Gould deemed Paul Seipel's biology report too amateur to go ahead as a scientific report without extensive rewriting. An inauspicious start to an auspicious career, but I'd rather you didn't go looking up anything I wrote when I was in my early 20s for comparison. Most early career scientific output is akin to most high school poetry and belongs on the same bonfire. Bird continued alternate cajolery and blustering imprecations to get Gould to finish the geological report, and Gould continued to steadfastly refuse to move on the matter until the associated costs were covered. Bird's finances took some hits in the Wall Street crash and in covering expedition debts, but Gould correctly saw fundraising as the remit of the expedition leader, and that Bird's preparations for Antarctica didn't extend to the various coders inherent to such work wasn't Gould's problem. I think Bird wanted the scientists to fund their own publications, and his employing Harold Saunders as his cartographer over Gould supports this. Bird only really cared that his flights and the associated landmark names received full attention. All other scientific work, while used to good effect in PR campaigns, 
didn't matter to him and could go on indefinite hiatus as far as he cared, which it pretty much did, Bird never actually publishing the scientific volumes his initial expedition proposals proposed. Richard Bird was a difficult man who left a problematic legacy in the care of his difficult son. People seeking to publish books or documentaries about Bird's exploits found their path made difficult by people either unwilling to speak to them or actively seeking to disparage them, sometimes even taking legal action to prevent a particular publication reaching the public. Bert Balkin's memoirs went to press and from there to the pulping machines due to injunctions taken out by Richard Evelyn Bird III, son of the Godzilla of the Antarctic. Besides iced coffee flying under the radar of most people who might object to its content, that Richard Bird Jr. died in 1988 prevented his interfering in my writing and publishing this episode of the series in which I criticise his beloved father. But it wasn't just Jr. who could throw a spanner in the works of those seeking to address Bird's legacy. In his 1990 preface to Beyond the Barrier, Eugene Rogers, Public Information Officer of the United States Antarctic Research Programs, recounts those Bird associates and Antarctic companions who became actively hostile to his attempts to gather first-hand accounts of Richard Bird's expeditions, one of them seemingly only agreeing to an interview in order to garner an opportunity to try and intimidate the author, warning him to only interview men of character and not Bird's detractors. Rogers gradually formed the impression that Bird's acolytes felt so passionately about the reputation of the man who led them that they would rather see him forgotten than witness his reputation tarnished. Suzanne Bennett recounted that Bird showed up at Wilkins' apartment, tears in his eyes, begging the Australian not to go south. But I feel a strong urge to take everything that woman said with a heaping great fistful of salt. Bird based his staff and crew selections on his perception of a candidate's loyalty, and as that's something that can only be measured in retrospect, this approach didn't serve him well. Men who presented a good loyalty quotient in interview or on paper, and who later demonstrated themselves as supremely poorly qualified for their role, Men who turned out to be indifferent or directly antagonistic to Bird's goals, or in the case of Brophy, men who turned out to be mad as a shithouse rat, seem orders of magnitude overrepresented in Bird's first Antarctic foray. Balkan relayed to close friends that Bennett confessed he and Bird discovered an oil leak in the Josephine Ford early in their attempt on the North Pole. Flying further north placed them in danger of a forced landing at maximum far away, essentially a death sentence. But given the one-shot nature of the effort, Bird elected, instead of aborting, to direct Bennett to fly a circuit out of sight of Spitsbergen for 14 hours before heading south. Dean Smith's diary never came to light. If it turns up in your hands, I'd be grateful of an opportunity to read it, but I suspect Richard III burnt it. In spite of all the scorn I incorporated into my notes for these episodes, Bird doesn't actually shape up too badly when compared to other Antarctic leaders, but this says more about the low quality of most other Antarctic leaders than it does about Bird's high-grade metal. We all have our favourites among the people who explored Antarctica, and they'll likely be favourites for their compassion, their humanity, or their humility. Traits most people are comfortable praising, but in terms of goals kicked and crew returned intact, Bird holds his head up with other successful expedition leaders, having led the biggest expedition to date, got a lot done, and getting everyone home again. Where Bird falls shortest is when compared to the image he promoted of himself. The clean living, noble, even-handed and honest-to-a-fault persona he presented to the media lies at odds with the underhanded, binge-drinking, scheming thief he demonstrated himself as to those he spent the winter with. By some measures, Bird is as much a tragic figure as Scott, operating outside his competence to achieve goals he didn't particularly value. But where Scott's clockwork was wound up tight by Sir Clements Markham, anachronistic naval traditions and a Victorian sense of familial duty, Bird brought his woes on himself through ineffectual leadership strategies coupled to vainglorious ambition. He's far from done in the ice coffee narratives, but I can make that generalisation early in the piece, as my opinion of the man doesn't improve with repeated exposure. Given that opinion, you might wonder at my dedicating so much time and verbiage to him, but the explanation is straightforward and important. Bird set the scene for Antarctic exploration and research for the next century. The winter spent at Little America is iconic, as almost every expedition that since went south, for whatever reason, copied Bird's methods and, where funds allowed, scale of operations. Establishing aviation as a support for long distance travel and field support drastically altered the equations by which expeditions calculated the food, 
fuel and time required to achieve specific goals in Antarctica. Dogs carried on serving in Antarctica into the 1990s, but their time as the most effective form of expedition transport was coming to an end. While Bird operated as a private citizen, he set the mould for national programs still evident in stations around Antarctica today, making him one of the most influential people in Antarctic history, and I thought that wanted thorough attention. Some updated insights on the flight of the Eagle. In episode 65, I discussed the Swedish expedition led by S. L. André, which used a hydrogen balloon in an attempt to reach the pole from Spitsbergen. The drag ropes I couldn't fathom in my previous readings make sense after I read The Ice Balloon by Alec Wilkinson. The weight of the ropes held the balloon a fixed distance above the ground. The balloon would rise until the weight of the rope it lofted added enough to the mass of the entire outfit that it equaled the lift generated by the hydrogen. Fixing the altitude of a gas balloon holds the advantage that the pilot need not vent gas due to expansion as the balloon passes through decreasingly dense air at increasing height, so the balloon maintains more lift for longer. The rope remaining on the ground causes drag as the wind moves the balloon along, and in moving slower than the wind, the aeronauts can set sails from the basket so as to point as much as 20 degrees either side of the wind's direction. That's pants in contrast with even square-rigged vessel point ability, but substantially better than a free balloon, which can only go where the wind takes it. Even there, I need to correct my past derision for aeronauts, having met some balloon pilots since then. Pato Saunders, a young and talented aeronaut new to my acquaintance, demonstrated a granularity in reading, predicting and using winds that puts to shame anything I've ever seen on show in fixed or rotary wing pilots, whose engines and thrust put them beyond such need. I still don't travel by balloon and think any density lofted vehicle a poor fit for high latitudes transport requirements, but I hold a new respect for the talents of the people who fly them. Andre's Eagle comprised a mixture of tethered and free balloon, and as such it took some advantages and disadvantages from both categories. He could control his height and set sails to offer pointability, but by limiting the balloon's motion in these ways, he couldn't place a balloon in favourable winds as readily as a pilot in a free balloon might. Gas balloonists have since overcome the altitude limitations Andre faced by making envelopes large enough to accept expanding gas as they ascend, but the expense and material limitations of the era precluded this approach. To lift the equipment needed for the expedition, Andre had to fill the silk balloon to capacity before launch, so any upward movement required a corresponding venting of gas and a balancing discard of ballast. The drag ropes, while for the most part keeping the balloon at fixed heights above the ground, didn't prevent gas loss to the extent Andre required to make a polar crossing even with favourable winds, winds which didn't arise in the time leading up to launch. Instead, Andre, Strindberg and Frankel headed off on a tangent to their desired course. The balloon lost gas to the point it couldn't carry them any further, and after two and a half days and the standard man-hauling across moving ice, tragedy ensued. So that brings this episode of Ice Coffee and my 2018 Antarctic contracting to an end. On my way north across the Drake Passage, lying in my rack near the centre of the Mr. Black. where the motion holds the least effect on my vestibular system, and where my snoring is overwhelmed by the hum of the engines. Among the many firsts that came my way this austral summer, I watched With Bird at the South Pole, the paramount account of life at Little America and Bird's aviation achievements in Antarctica. It is saccharine and contrived but so is everything from that era by present-day standards, and I think a lot of the criticism the film received in its day arose from cognitive biases allowing people to see the flaws in the American output, while ignoring similar problems with equivalent output from other nations. As far as documenting the mode of the Little Americans, it's a valuable resource, giving visual hooks on which to hang the mental images drawn from written accounts. The talky sections are hard to stomach, as watching Bird almost burning out the film stock in his navy whites, reading from cue cards, is as bad as you might imagine. Igloo gets a lot of screen time providing what passed for comic relief 90 years ago. The Floyd Bennett, now preserved in the Henry Ford along with the Josephine Bird, 
is the real star of the show, and while I think trimotor airframes of that configuration are ugly as sin, footage of the machine working its groove in Antarctica gave me a new appreciation for the design. I still think it's ugly, but there's some interest in building a scale representation of that particular airframe that didn't exist before I watched the film. I also watched The Terror, Ridley Scott's screen adaptation of Dan Simmons' book of the same name. I've grown wary of Ridley Scott's output, given that his last two outings that came onto my radar, Prometheus and Alien pre-prequel, put the boot both into science and a much-loved prior body of work, but felt sufficiently intrigued by the concept of someone dramatising Franklin's final Northwest Passage expedition that I willingly put some time aside to give it a go, and I'm very glad I did. Ridley Scott produced the series but didn't direct it, though it does seem to exhibit his talent for pointing a camera and lighting a subject. The visuals are excellent, the script is tight as a nut, and the supernatural elements of Simmons' story didn't grandstand over the characters or their interplay. The story made cannibalism monstrous off the back of murder, neatly sidestepping the problem of the story getting bogged down in pitting Victorian sensibilities against human survival. The performances were compelling, with no particular standout, though Mr Blanky became a favourite, seemingly written to fit the mould of the sort of person I at least want to hang out with, if not actually be. My favourite aspect of the series was the ending it afforded Francis Crozier, who certainly deserved something better than likely actually fell his way. Finally, Italian-Russian collaboration directed by Mikhail Kalazatov. The Red Tent put Sean Connery in old man makeup as Roald Amundsen and Peter Finch in old and young man makeup as Umberto Nobile. The story of the flight of the Italia and the attempts to rescue the survivors of its crash is told as a series of flashbacks as the elderly Nobile reviews 1928 events in a midnight court comprising the ghosts of those he left dead or embittered by those events. It's good 1969 cinema, with some stunning visuals and a soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. The storytelling gets caught up in the inclusion of a love interest that likely did more for the sex life of the producer than it did for the film. The producer's insistence on the inclusion of his mistress in the cast, causing the scriptwriter, Yuri Nagibin, also the author of the novel at the base of the movie, to chuck the project before completion. The script gives Nobile a more noble role in events than my recounting of the tale did, but I don't see how his leadership and stoicism could shine as much as Peter Finch's portrayal implies from inside his sleeping bag inside the tent. Amundsen's fate and those of the men aboard the balloon portion of the Italia are fleshed out in the absence of any evidence of what happened to whom and where and when. The Crason looks a mason. There's lots of Soviet flag-waving in the Russian language sections, but it's notably less ham-fisted than the more egregious examples of the same thing in Western cinema of the era, and given Russia's primary role in getting word out about the survival and location of the Red Tent Party and their subsequent rescue, they're due some waving of flags. The storytelling process is innovative and effective. Two thumbs up, but I'm not telling where. I didn't top and tail recent episodes with my customary housekeeping, but I'll pick that up when I get back to the dive hut. For now, it's cheers to Ewan, who is good company. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Some March updates. Jeff Maynard's new book, Antarctica's Lost Aviator, is on the shelves, and it's a cracker. Jeff stopped by for a coffee and to give me a copy, and in return I gave him a scale model of the Northrop Gamma that features so prominently in the text. I tore through the book as its compelling stuff. Jeff's access to primary source documents, actual research, cost him time and money, but paid dividends in allowing him to write a thorough and balanced account of Lincoln Ellsworth's part in Antarctic polar history. The combination of Jeff's ability as a storyteller the extent of the reading he did to understand his subject, and the breadth of the synthesis that the work comprises make for a page-turning read. I use and recommend Antarctica's Forgotten Aviator. A big thanks to Randall, who trekked along to the Howler for Nerd Night on the 18th of February. It's not often a science presentation leaves you feeling like a rock star, 
but that's exactly the Nerd Knight experience, and Randall earned himself a badly battered copy of Chris Turney's 1912, The Year We Discovered Antarctica, for greeting me with the phrase, adiabatic warming. I'll get it to him the next time our paths cross. And thanks, Randall, for putting me on to the Little Dum Dum Club podcast. Funny stuff. I recently received my copy of the Ice Eagles documentary from Graceful Willow Productions. Focusing on US aviators, the two-DVD set examines the history and present role of aircraft in Antarctica, combining a lot of rarely or never-seen historical footage with interviews from historians of and participants in America's Antarctic presence. Ice Eagles is compelling viewing. The narrative comes to some different conclusions than I do about some people and events, but I came here to chew gum and to criticise other people's Antarctic history output, and I've got loads of gum. A shout-out to Emily, who's been extremely courageous and proactive in addressing her chronic major depression. She's sharing her journey with her friends to demystify what depression is like, nightmarishly fucking awful, to highlight how people crippled by depressive episodes are treated by our community, mostly badly, and what options a person can explore in seeking to ameliorate depression's impact on the life of an individual, SRI medications, lithium, electroconvulsive therapy. Emily is a kick-ass exemplar of following the evidence-based path to solving a problem, and my admiration for her fortitude and stamina in the long game is substantial. I'm looking forward to meeting her in a coming exercise in dualism, wherein I will be both in a dive hut on the shores of Ross Island and visiting relatives in the USA. Besides good company and an opportunity to pat Atticus Fluffatummers, I anticipate learning a lot about the bird life, reptiles and fishies of Emily's home turf. Depression gives me a kicking when I don't stay on top of my medication or CBT. It's taken friends from me, and it featured in a lot of the sad situations I helped clean up in my time in the trauma cleaning industry. I don't know much about how depression is discussed or addressed in nations outside Australia, but I know we're only just now getting over our historical stiff upper lips and the expectation that people should suck it up. Depression is a medical problem every bit as real to a sufferer as a broken arm or a second degree burn, and it doesn't heal and become part of a person's past in the same way as a fracture or a burn can do. If you're experiencing depression, talk to your doctor or a mental health professional. Find a path forward, because there are ways to ameliorate, or at least knock the edges off, most forms of the chemical processes that cause it. It's not an easy road, but it's the one you're on. You've got to win through every challenge that road sets you, because you can only lose once. I won't judge anyone who opts out, but after cleaning up after some hundreds of suicides, I'd rather depression no longer count among the reasons people end their lives. It can't be cured outright, but you can examine treatments to minimalise its impacts if you seek help and examine your options. With inspirations like Emily putting their experience out there, not taking any shit from anyone for experiencing mental health challenges, and telling stupid hippies to go fuck themselves when they try to tell her to spend time in a forest or hugging a rainbow, instead of turning to science and evidence-based medicine for help. I think future cohorts will experience less stigma and attempts at mental health shaming than my mob did. Perhaps a more comprehensive shout-out than I've given anyone in this series, but one that Emily warrants. Love your work, you scientific badass you. Finally, some corrections based on recent reading. Crean and Lashley weren't as reticent as I reported in episode 36 about Scott's shot at the pole. They couldn't question the owner's decision, but they'd worked so hard to help get everyone to the last stage, they couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the emotions, and they were in tears as they received the news that they wouldn't carry forward. Also, a point about ponies I didn't catch in my previous reading, and which I didn't think my way through in spite of knowing that horses sweat but that dogs lack sebaceous glands. Ponies were extra hard to keep warm in Antarctica because, in spite of rubs down and thick horse blankets, their sweat chilled their skin, where dogs, who thermoregulate through their breathing, didn't need a rub down or a blanket and could go to sleep in the snow immediately after finishing hauling. For the second time this episode, take care and appreciate your coffee. <laughs> <laughs>